This is the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. Hello, friends, and welcome to a Wednesday Wisdom episode of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. And if you're wondering why the J, the answer is I am not a bagpipe player. And if that joke doesn't make any sense, I encourage you to check out episode zero where I explain that joke as well as the purpose of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast. But as to today's episode, our Wednesday Wisdom episodes are this. I am sharing the audio of my sermons from the church I pastor, Evident Grace Fellowship in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as well as sermons from churches I have pastored prior, as well as sermons that I've preached at other places. And I'm sharing them with you for this reason. My sermons are usually not too long. They're between 30 and 40 minutes long. And by sharing them with you, it gives you a chance for some spiritual encouragement midweek. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's challenging and encouraging, like I said. And if it is, would you please send me a note at uh, gordon at jgordonnuckin.com or maybe even share this sermon online, Facebook, or on your Instagram story. I hope you enjoy it. So let's get to the sermon. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Word of the Lord stands forever. In Luke 6, we get Jesus' re-speaking or retelling of the Sermon on the Mount. And in Luke 6, he specifically uh, emphasizes the Beatitudes, the, the being or the attitude that we should have. It's, a, it's a, an attitude or it's a, a place of supreme blessing from God. He's telling us uh, what uh, he's going to make us into. But he's also telling us uh, what the results are when we don't live a life of faithfulness. So Jesus begins with uh, blessings, and then he goes on to woes. It's very much a, a covenantal way of speaking, the blessings and the curses of living out a relationship with God. So he begins with the blessings. He's like, listen, blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. He continues on in Luke. Blessed are you who are hungry. For you shall be satisfied. He tells you, blessed are you those who weep. For you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you. Or revile you because of Jesus. Because they did that to the prophets. Great is your reward in heaven. So he's speaking about this, uh, this earthly, uh, this earthly redoing of what it looks like to be miserable, hungry, poor, weeping, being hated. It's like no, 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 no. What's what's awaiting you is being filled, laughter, blessing from God. And he goes on to speak. He's like, well, woe to the rich, and you've received your consolation. Woe to those who are full now, because you're going to be hungry. Woe to those who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you if people are always flattering with your speech. That's the way they treated the false prophets. And so you get the sense of, like, is Jesus talking about this now? Is he talking about it physically? Is he talking about it spiritually? And the answer is a little bit of yeah. Does God, is God's heart with brokenhearted when people are poor and hungry? Of course. But there's also nature in that, that if we're poor in spirit or we're thirsting and hungry for God, he's going to care for us. But there's a, a physical attribute to it as well, because it's like, listen, if people hate you for Jesus' sake, be comforted, because 
They hated Jesus. And the woes, like, woe the rich, for they perceived their consolation. Does that mean that God hates the rich? Of course not. He blessed many people in Scripture with wealth, but he warns of a condition where one's trust is in wealth and not in him. So if your trust is in wealth but not in him, you've gotten all the consolation you're going to get. But if you're always being flattered, you need to be careful because that's the way false prophets are treated because they only said the things that tickled people's ears. There's this poor versus rich, hungry versus full, weeping versus laughter, hatred versus flattery thing going on in the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Luke. Jesus goes on to say this. He's like, I, I say to everyone who can hear, love your enemies. Love them. Do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. As you wish for others to do to you, so do to them. The reversal of the kingdom is that we've got to love our enemies. We've got to treat them in the way in which we are treated. Because that was the love of Christ, right? He was reviled and poured out love. So way God treated us while we were yet enemies. Christ died for the ungodly. We were the enemies of God. And he said... Christ was because he loved us. When we hear that, each one of us should think, who truly is my enemy? And I would say, who is it you complain about the most? Whoever you're complaining about the most is probably your enemy. Maybe you have actual enemies, people you hate, people who hate you. If you're constantly watching television, you're like, oh, that person, oh, that person, or that party, or this. Like, you, you have enemies, then pour out love to them. When they think of you, should they, they should think, well, that Christian loves me. That makes no sense. If your understanding and application of this passage isn't like wrecking, wrecking your life a little bit, you're not listening to it correctly. Jesus goes on to say in verse 32, If you love those who love you, what's the benefit? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that? For even sinners do the same. He's like, listen, if you're only kind to people who are kind to you, is there any benefit of your faith? The people who are angry at you, you should go be kind to them. You should do good to your enemy. That person you complain about all the time, go serve them. Christianity should look different than what the world looks like. Verse 35, if you love your enemies and do good and Lend, expect nothing in return. Your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The picture that Jesus puts out for the church is this. The impact and movement that's happening in the world right now should be from the church. But it's almost silent right now. We should be advancing forward, lifting up the name of Jesus Christ and the peace that he proclaims we should be agents of peace in our world. Our churches should be full of grace and mercy poured over again. Patience over and over and over again. There should be no enemies within the church. We should be those who do good with nothing expected in return. We serve and we serve knowing that our reward is in heaven, not now. If you lose patience with the ability to do that, 
It's a it's a situation between you and your heavenly Father because you're living out the example and the command of Christ. This is a small picture of what love looks like in this world according to Jesus. Now, last week in Romans 13, Paul was telling us that part of the love of a Christian is a respect of the authority that God has placed above you. Speaking and living in such a way that your thoughts and your words are respectful to the authority. And remember, the context of Romans 13 was the uh, just absolute corrupt Caligula who pursued every sensual pleasure, Claudius who hated and killed the Jewish people, and Nero who hated and martyred Christians. That's the context. The life of a Christian should be just this revolutionary life where you can speak well, respectfully, even if you disagree with the authorities above you. Today's passage is going to talk about well, what does it now look like to love one another? It's going to be revolutionary and challenging. I'm going to take an extra moment to pray for us. Father, right now, would your words speak and overcome any obstacle in our heart? In Jesus' name, amen. Our big idea is one of the verses from this passage. The big idea is love does no harm. Love does no harm. We're going to see three points. Love owes no debt. Love fulfills God's command. And loving your neighbor. Let's look at uh, beginning in verse 8. Love owes no debt. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Forever loves others has fulfilled the law. So you shouldn't have any outstanding debts. An outstanding debt is a delinquent debt. You should work in every way to pay off those debts, but you never pay off the debt you have to love others. Because if you love others, you're literally fulfilling the law. Now, uh, this is one of the verses that is popular in the systems of um, anti-debt presently. There's lots of systems out there that are going to help you pay off your credit cards. And those systems have done a lot of good. They've helped many people pay off their debt and prevented people from going greater into debt or debt at all. And the idea, they have this thing called the debt snowball. So you line up all your debts, right? And this one is $25 a month, and this one's $100 a month, and this one's $500 a month. And the idea here is, okay, um, you pay the minimum, and you pay off the smallest debt first, that $25 a month. When that one's paid off, you take that $25 and you add it to the $75 a month debt. And then when that one's done, you take that $75 and you add it to the $500. So now you're paying $575 a month. And the snowball bills, and you gradually pay off your debt. It's an incredibly helpful system to get people out of debt. And we talk about it a lot because debt is the way America builds everything. Here, Paul says, except you never pay off this debt. Never, 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 never. You have a continuing debt to love other people. There's no debt snowball for loving others. You can never get to the point and say, I have loved enough. No. Every day you wake up owing love.
love to other people. That's the language of Romans. Every day you wake up and you owe a debt of love to others because love is fulfilling the law. This is the way that God wants his people to live. You look at every person and you say to them, I owe love to you as a reflection of my love of the Father. So when you look at a person and you disagree with their lifestyle, you look at them and go, I owe you a debt of love. When you look at a person and you disagree with their theology, their biblical beliefs, you go, I owe you a debt of love. When you look at someone and you disagree with their the political party that they're part of, you go, I owe you a debt of love. When you look at a person of another race, you look at them and you say, I owe you a debt of love. When you look at a person with a different sexual orientation, you say, I owe you a debt of love. And there's no debt snowball. You haven't paid it off. You can't say, I've done enough of it. I'm done. No. Because loving is how you obey. And remember, it's got to be done out of a, a genuine desire to love. Because we already learned in 1 Corinthians that we can have correct theology and not love. We know that we can have a correct faith and that's not love. We know that we can even do acts of mercy and it's not love unless it's genuinely loving the other person. Looking at them and saying, I'm going to love you like God loved me. And while I was yet ungodly... God sent Christ to love me. So while you are ungodly, I'm going to love you. And then you'll get another person to go, while you're my enemy, I'm going to love you. Is this what the church looks like? All I am doing is explaining what love looks like in the scriptures. And we, at Evident Grace, and you hearing this, we must conform our understanding of love to this. Yes, we should proclaim scripture to them. But if we do it in the words of angels without love, we know the scriptures are that powerful, but we're not demonstrating love. We might start every mercy work in the world, but if we're not doing it with a debt of love, people are not going to hear Christ through what we're doing. So we've got to have correct theology. We've got to have big faith, and we've got to have those acts of mercy, but we must do it lovingly. And every day we wake up and say, I owe you a debt of love. Let's take it from the big picture and walk into your household. For spouses, this spouse, you know, husband and wife, you guys are arguing all the time. You got to the point where all you can do is argue. You're talking about you're arguing about sex, money, and your kids, those big three. You wake up in the morning and you tell yourself, I owe a debt of love to my spouse. Your kids breaking your heart, your kids annoying you, you look at them and you go, I owe you a debt of love. Siblings fighting all the time. You're taking this, you're taking that, you're jealous of each other. You kill that and you go, but I owe you a debt of love. We don't earn anything by this. We don't earn more love from God. We, we can't even imagine the immense amount of God. God has vast pools of love for us we can't even plumb the depths of. We do it as an act of worship to glorify God. We as Christians, the word means little Christ. That means we are demonstrating Christ's love to others. We do it with theology, we do it with faith, we do it with actions, but it must be done out of a debt of love. A debt of love. Let's continue on. Love fulfills God's commands. 
Verse 9. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in one command, love your neighbor as yourself. You can take every single command that God's given us, the Ten Commandments, all the commands, you can sum them up and it's love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So I'm going to speak to a minute here. These are very much personal holiness commands a lot of time. You can say, well, uh, not committed adultery? Like, okay. I'm not cheating on my spouse, so I, I can check that one off. You can say, well, I haven't killed anybody. Check that one off. I haven't stolen anything. I can check that one off. And it might be just real quick. Okay, I got this, Jesus. We might be like that that, uh, that rich young ruler who came to Jesus and like, I got all these commands. We don't want to be that. It can't just be that we're not doing those things and therefore obeying. We have to actively be loving others. Uh, At Evident Grace Fellowship, if you're watching with us and you're not familiar with us, we have a very large statement of faith. Some churches have a a statement of faith, um, you know, a a page or two, a little bit larger, and and that's understandable. Ours is a big book, the Westminster Confession of Faith, including the larger and the shorter catechisms. And so we greatly value this as an expression of, of our faith, and myself and the officers of the church, officers of the church, have looked at that book and said, "Yes, we've taken a vow." We said, "Yes, that's a, a correct expression of our theology." And the catechisms—that's a question and answer system. The catechisms goes through each one of the Ten Commandments and asks us, like, "What does it mean?" So, larger catechism number 68. What's required in the sixth commandment? That sixth commandment is the uh, don't commit murder commandment. And we might go, I haven't killed anybody, I've obeyed. But listen to the answer. The sixth commandment requires all lawful, lawful endeavors to preserve our life and the life of others. So that means that obedience to not murdering is not just I didn't murder anyone. It means I have to take every lawful endeavor to protect my life and the life of others. That is the larger catechism number 68, which we believe. So I might say, well, I didn't murder anybody today. I, I, I obey. But if we're allowing actions that threaten the life of others, we're not obeying. Like, it's not just I didn't kill someone. It actually goes to actively preserving life. Actively preserving life. Uh, there's another uh, Reformed Catechism, uh, Catechism 107 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's not one that we take vows to, so I'm not going to quote it as authoritative, but I think it expresses well. Heidelberg Catechism 107 says, it, says this, Is it enough that we don't murder our neighbor in such a way? Like, is it enough that I just don't murder? It's a long answer. Let me, let me read it to you. I think it's got impact. No. By condemning every hatred and anger, God wants us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to be patient, peace-loving, gentle, merciful, and friendly toward them, to protect them from harm as much as we can, and to do great even to our enemies. I think this is true. We can't just say, well, I didn't murder anybody, I've obeyed. No, we need to actively pursue the care of others. And if there are things that are threatening the lives of others, we need to step in. Like, for example, 
Let me speak to, to one issue that is very near and dear to much of the evangelical church, and then I want to push this a little bit, right? Like, for example, abortion and pro-life. The value of a child in the womb expressed in Scripture. I and many in the church have rightfully pointed out that to kill a child in the womb is wrong. That God values that child in the womb, has known that child in the womb, and calls it a life in the womb. Known by God before even knit together. So in that area, the church is very expressive. Fighting even through legal channels for representation to protect that child. And I would say, yes, it's exactly what we do. But then, that, that pro-life stance doesn't always make it beyond birth. When we see people actively being murdered in our nation, and we're not speaking out against it, we are violating the command to do not murder. We're not actively loving our neighbor. When we see people like Breonna Taylor being murdered in her own home and no justice taking place, the church must say, that is evil and wrong. When we see people like George Floyd being, being suffocated, we must speak out and say, how could this be? This is evil. If it was me who was murdered while I was running, I would hope that someone would say, that was evil, that was wrong, what can we do about it? We can't be silent in issues of injustice in this world. We cannot. We cannot. It's not actively loving our neighbor. I want to address maybe even a fear I hear in some of your hearts. You say, Gordon, you're talking about things. This could be the slippery slope of the church moving into social justice and too much politics and leaving the gospel. And I'm going to say, no, friends. This is not the slippery slope into to liberalism. It's the active slope, the hill we have to climb. We have the gospel and the peace of Jesus Christ. If people are being murdered unjustly, then in obedience to Romans 13, 9, in obedience to you shall not murder, we have to actively love our neighbors and speak out against it. And speak out against it. We must be a church that loves our neighbors as we love ourselves. That's what it says to love our neighbors. So, so would we want anyone to speak out for us if we died unjustly? If you answer that question, yes, I would want someone to speak out for me if I died unjustly, then we must speak out for others who have died unjustly. If racism is a sin, and we were victims of racism, we would want someone to speak out for us, so we must speak out against it. But it must be an act of love. Love is not just a thought. Remember, it can't be that we believe something, can't believe that we have great faith, and that we even do actions. It's got to be fueled by love. So our theology must be fueled by love. Our faith in Jesus must be fueled by love. Our actions must be fueled by love. Because love is what? The fulfillment of the law. 
We don't do it to earn anything. We're not earning our faith. We're not trying to impress God with our goodness. We're just trying to be a demonstration of God's love to us because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We were the enemies of God. The enemies of God. He sent Christ. Let's look at what loving your neighbor looks like. Verse 10. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Our love cannot do any harm to a neighbor. That's either in what we do or what we allow to happen. We cannot allow any harm to come to our neighbor. That means that the church intercepts harm coming to our neighbor. If you knew that next door, your next door neighbor, if you knew that that night great harm was going to come to them and you didn't step in to do it, you would be allowing harm to come to that neighbor. We must be serving them. We, we obviously are proclaiming scripture. But it's got to be done with love. We are having great faith and proclaiming great faith and done by love. And we're doing acts of service and it must be fueled by love. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. When we don't do that, we're a lot like an old song by Travis Tritt. Anybody know who Travis Tritt is? Country artist. I'm showing my Johnson County roots here for a minute. His song references payphones, and I recognize at that point in time I've lost most of you post-1995. Travis Tritt had a song that said, Here's a quarter. Call someone who cares. If the church is silent when people are dying, when people are silent, when the church is silent when injustice is present, if the church is silent or more concerned about where we are affiliated politically, we can say, here's a quarter. Call someone else who cares. Friends, the church doesn't have a political party. It does not. You take your biblical values and your biblical convictions, and then you walk into a voting booth, and with the conscience and the work of the Holy Spirit God's given you, and with the education that you do and research, you make a choice that is as biblical as possible. But we don't align ourselves with a political party. It's ridiculous. Can't imagine at any point in time the scriptures would condone that. Friends, I don't have a human being in the world that I agree 100% with. Not one. My wife and I don't agree 100%. My best friends and I don't agree 100%. My children and I. So there's no political party that we're going to agree with 100%. I know you don't. But churches and Christians sometimes are just so quiet. They're so quiet when people on both sides of the aisle say evil things. Love does no harm. And if the speech of any politician is speaking harm, the church's job to say is that's harmful. It's true anywhere. Anywhere. If I saw other pastors speaking in a racist manner, it's my responsibility to confront them. At times I have, and at times I have failed. And in that failure, it was sin. Love does zero harm. We don't protect politics. We proclaim the peace of Jesus Christ. One author I read this week said, When love is a theory, it's safe. It's free of risk. Love in the brain changes nothing. Let me say that again. When love is a theory, it's safe. It's free of risk. Love in the brain 
changes nothing. If we're going to love others, we're going to have to be actively involved in their lives. And it's going to be a risk. might be a risk of your reputation. Who's Gordon hanging out with? Who's Gordon talking to? Is Gordon getting liberal? Is Gordon getting too conservative? Who's Gordon talking to? Be true for you too, right? All of a sudden you start spending time with non-believers, people with scandalous reputation. All of a sudden you would gain the reputation of Jesus. It's a great joy to spend time with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the outcasts. Did he share love with them? He did. He loved them. He proclaimed truth to them. Of course he did. But he meant them no harm. He demonstrated no harm to them. The way we love people that we disagree with is the best evidence of what we really believe. If you're looking out right now and you've got a list of all the people on television that you disagree with, you got a list of people in your, your book club or your neighborhood or at the uh, we don't have sports leagues anymore. I, mean, uh, I guess we don't even have gyms anymore. Maybe now, people at the gym you disagree with, at the church you disagree with, the way you love those people you disagree with them is the best demonstration of what you really believe. Because God loved the ungodly and his enemy. Do we seek transformation? Of course. Do we seek for people to have faith in Jesus Christ? Of course. Do we know that people only come to faith through the proclamation of the word? Yes. But our responsibility is to do it in love. God's responsibility is to take that word and transform it. So yes, I can just preach the word and people get saved, but I'm called to more of that and so are you. We're called to demonstrate love to one another Demonstrate love to those that we disagree with. Friends, it is such a hotbed right now. We live in the upturning of this pandemic. Every aspect of our life has been changed. How we go to the grocery store has been changed. How we worship has changed. And then in the midst of this, we're in this massive civil unrest where people are crying out for justice. We've got people who are protesting peacefully. And then we've got people who are doing great harm to others sinfully. And where's the church? The church must be in the marketplace of ideas, proclaiming the peace of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ. We don't want any harm done. We don't want harm done to anyone. We don't. It means we actively have to, what is it that our catechism said? Our catechism said, all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. Obeying the commandment of not murdering means we go out and we do everything lawfully we can. That would line up with Romans 13.1. We do everything lawfully we can to protect life. From the beginning of life, in the womb, to the end of life. We have to do it with love. So we're going to have, do our best to have correct theology. We're going to have the, the words of angels lovingly. Because you can believe the Westminster Confession and bust the gates of hell wide open. We're going to have great faith. God, I believe you can do anything. But the demonstration of that faith is going to be loving. 
and we're going to meet the needs of others. We're going to serve others. It's, it's just as tirelessly as we can, but we're going to do it out of a motive of love. Because love does no harm to our neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the love. Friends, th this, this message, first of all, let me remind you, you are so loved. Through Jesus Christ, you have this, this vast reservoir of love experience for you and for others. You have been loved. You didn't deserve God's love, nor did I. We were his enemies. We would have taken God's throne in a moment, but he poured out so much love for us. He sent Jesus Christ to love us, to die for us, to rise again for our transformation and for the hope of glory. We are loved. And to every person in the world, you can look at them and say, you are an image bearer of God. You are loved. And I'm going to love you, and I'm going to proclaim the truths of Jesus to you, so then you will know the redemptive love of Jesus. We can look at every human being that we disagree with and say, you have value because you were created in the image of God. And then, in that opportunity of service, and that opportunity of telling them the scriptures, no one gets saved apart from the scriptures, we want to demonstrate to them and proclaim to them the redemptive love of God. Friends, let me bring us to a conclusion, a truth, application, and action. Our big idea is this. Love does no harm. We looked at three points. Love owes no debt. Love fulfills God's command. And then we looked at loving your neighbor. Our truth is this. Owing nothing to God, because Christ paid our debt, you don't owe anything to God. Christ paid everything. We're now free to obey God and love our neighbor. If you don't actively love your neighbor, you're doing them harm. If you're not actively loving your neighbor, you're doing them harm. Application. Live knowing that you owe God nothing, your debt's been paid, but owe your neighbor a continuing debt of love. You don't owe God anything, but you owe a continuing debt of love to your neighbor. Romans 13. Action. I'll just repeat Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Let's pray that God enables us to do this. Let's bow our heads.